everybody, and welcome to Friends of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. I am your host, Brad Whipple, and joining me on the show, as always, is Sarah Haas. Sarah, welcome. Hello. Thank you. How's it going? Hi. It's going well. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm really excited to share this episode with everybody. Yes, we are like full throttle right now when it comes to the Alphabet Squadron trilogy. If you haven't already listened to our spoiler review episode, which just went up last Monday, we talked about Victory's Price, which is the final book in the trilogy. It was very, very fun, almost three hours of, of discussion. So in uh, 20, 30 pages of Google Doc. So uh, yeah. it was quite, quite a time. It, it was. It was. I mean, I cried. So yeah. Yeah. Success. It was a bop, as the kids would call it. Yeah, as I would call it. That's what I yeah. would call it. It's a bop. But we are here to continue that coverage and also close it out at the same time because we are super thrilled to welcome back author Alexander Freed, who wrote both this trilogy as well as the book Twilight Company and the Rogue One novelization. So we had Alexander on the show back last year when we talked about Shadowfall. So I got to interview him and now Sarah joins me for the follow-up interview, which is very exciting. So Sarah, I, I had a great time talking to him and I'm excited for everybody to, uh, to hear our interview. Yeah, I will say that we go full spoilers for the content of, of Victory's Price. So if you haven't read it, I would maybe recommend our Shadowfall interview that Brad did last year where perhaps a little bit less spoilery, spoilery. At least because it's not the third book and it doesn't show where all the characters go. But yeah, yeah, this is a full spoiler interview um, and we're super, super excited to that we got the one that we got the opportunity to interview him again and two that we get to share it with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So again, last warning, spoilers ahead. Do not cross. Do not collect your $200. Do not pass go if you haven't read Victory's Price because this book is so good and you should experience it for yourself. So without further ado, let's jump over to our interview with Alexander Freed. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. We are so excited to welcome back to Friends of the Force, Alexander Freed, the author of the Alphabet Squadron trilogy, the Rogue One novelization, and Twilight Company. He's now a five-timer officially <laughs> for the Star Wars, current Star Wars canon. Great stuff. Alexander, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for, uh, for bringing me back. Last time I had you on the show was back in uh, summer 2020, so, you know, I think... Now we have a little bit of a, of a better look out on life and things seem to be going a little better. And uh, I'm very happy about that. And we got the final addition to your, your trilogy. So first thing I want to ask you is, how does it feel? You know, congrats, first off, finishing your first Star Wars trilogy. What has it been like to just kind of put the story out there? It's fully completed and, you know, you kind of let the, the fans take it into their hands. Yeah, I mean, it, it, feels, it feels good in the sense of, I have said what I wanted to say and I had I had every opportunity to get everything I needed down on paper and now it's done and now it's out there and I feel like the the task is complete. Um you know I I miss I miss the characters to an extent although I feel like I've I put them in a a, 
you know, satisfactory place. Like, again, I said what I need to say with them. Um, mm-hmm. It's strange not to have a Star Wars novel sitting in front of me needing to be worked on. It's been a few years since that. But uh, but yeah, it feels good. And I've been been very heartened by, uh, by the reception as well. How does it feel com- completing a trilogy versus that of a single book. So now to kind of like wrap up this complete arc must be a little bit of a different feeling. Like, does it, is there any more satisfaction that's involved to the, you know, you, you know, you did this thing. And um, like you said, you've, you've had your time with the characters and now it's over, but like, what, how does that feeling compare to previous projects that you've worked on? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar, but it's, it's just bigger, um, right? There's, there's more sense of completion. There's more sense of like, wow, that was, that was a long journey to take, um, and now it's done. You know, I've uh, I spend most of my time in the video game industry, where you know three to five year projects are pretty common, um, and so it feels a little bit like launching a game after putting you know that much time into it. Only it's much more personal because with a a video game, I'm you know part of a team of dozens or hundreds, whereas this was pretty much just me and you know editorial support so for this trilogy when you're mapping it out when you're planning i know i have three books i've got these characters for all three did you know what you were going to where you were going to end up with these characters and you know if so or if not what was the process of building these characters and their arcs over the three books Sure. So, I mean, my my answer to did I know where it was all going uh, is mostly, um, you know, there were places where there was room for flexibility. Um, I don't think anything that I had laid down in detail in my first few, you know, outlines once once we sort of went back and forth with editorial and Lucasfilm and we're like, okay, this is what we're doing. There were some spots that were vague, but I don't think anything that I had put down there changed in any significant way. Um, and that, that gave me a, a pretty clear roadmap across the trilogy. I knew the spine of it. Um, so, you know, I knew that Quell was going to sort of get uh, isolated in book two, and I knew the sort of emotional effects that that was going to have on her. I didn't necessarily know, oh, there's going to be this this system called Cerberon, but I knew the the beats that I needed to hit. I knew mm-hmm. where she and Soren were going to end up at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a general sense for... Um, most of the characters it varied a little bit character by character as to whether i knew exactly where they were going to end up um but it was it was a good plan (laughs) and i have real trouble writing without a plan so that was something that i knew (laughs) i needed going in Mm -hmm. Uh, and having that down you know i was kind of just able to follow it for you know three three solid books without getting too you know, worry midway through, oh God, where am I going? This has all become unexpected. I don't know how to wrap this up. Right. With that roadmap in mind, as you start to see the finish line ahead of you and you're like, you know, almost there, like what are just some of the biggest challenges to 
not only wrapping up all these different arcs and, you know, kind of closely somewhat sticking to that roadmap that you had from the beginning, you know, kind of laying, sticking to your original intentions, but also making it feel like a natural conclusion. Like, what are some of the challenges for that? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it really is, you know, going into book three, again, pretty, pretty much knew my goals, but when you've got uh, a bunch of, hey, these things need to happen, and then you need to build a story around those, um, it becomes a little bit, uh, little, little bit like a game of Tetris, right? You're just trying to find places to slide the blocks into the you know, what's, what's the connecting tissue between this plot point and that plot point? And, you know, I, I know I need to get to point B at some point. I can't push it out any further. There's just a lot less flexibility than in, you know, books one and two, because there's, there's nothing you can defer anymore. Anything mm-hmm. that's going to happen needs to be dealt with right there. So constructing the, the, actual plot as opposed to the story of book three um had its its share of challenges um yeah speak speaking of things that need to happen uh, sarah was slightly behind me when reading and i texted her uh the gif <laughs> of am. the gif of finn saying um why are we going back to jack who because that's just the <laughs> the running joke as for among star wars fans so i wanted to ask like you know was the the battle of jack who and also this kind of side mission to coruscant which we were so excited to see Coruscant and like a sequel trilogy era that was just so exciting but were those two kind of big monumental moments that you really wanted to get to eventually because and and like why did those kind of feel like a good way to sort of wrap up the war from these characters perspectives yeah Jakku was an interesting one so I can't I can't recall in detail but I I believe the very first uh, sort of, you know, one-page proposal that I got from Lucasfilm, sort of outlining what is this project, and you know, what what time period do we want it to be in? You know, we want to have a squadron with a bunch of mismatched ships. We want Hera in there. I think there was some mention in there of we we want this to run to the Battle of Jakku. They don't need to be there, but we kind of want that to be the general ending point mm-hmm. um, and Jakku is tough because it's been covered a bunch of times in other material and covered well um, mm-hmm. well and thoroughly so you know I, I thought about the notion of okay do I want to just avoid Jakku entirely at the end of this thing um, and that didn't feel right because it is you know this is very much a trilogy about surviving the war and to not be there at the symbolic end of it all felt it didn't feel thematically appropriate even if it would have been nice on a not overlapping other material level to have found another ending so Mm -hmm. i i knew i did want to end up at jakku i also knew i didn't want to only end up at jakku um which is where the idea of sort of splitting the ending between Jakku and Coruscant came from um, to make it a little more distinct from, you know, the Jakku that we've seen in Aftermath and Lost Stars and Battlefront 2. And I'm sure I'm forgetting half a dozen. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, trying to find, all right, 
we're going to do Jakku again. We're going to try to do it from its own angle. We're going to, you know, do it purely in space. We're going to do it with its own reasons and context. Uh, we're going to do it with our own thematic approach, which is, of course, a little bit different than, you know, all these stories have their own unique themes. But then we've also got Coruscant just for the for the readers who are like, oh, God, Jakku, not again. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I didn't feel like the, oh, Jakku, not again, but like the, oh my gosh, we're going to Jakku, because the excitement of knowing what happens there and um, getting that in in great stories like Aftermath and in Battlefront 2 was really thrilling. I kept texting Brad. I was like, are we, are we going to, are we really going to, oh my gosh, we're going to Jakku. So that yeah. was really exciting. And then I think to have Coruscant in there as well really ties it all together from the prequels into now this, um, you know, end of the originals in the beginning of the sequel kind of age or era. Uh, so I thought it was really an excellent way to, to put everything together and make it all, um, relevant and and exciting for not only the characters but for the rebellion as a whole so it worked for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, definitely. I'm, I'm glad to hear that i mean the the chorus part was uh interesting as well that was i believe in my my sort of first sketchy outlines of the trilogy from before i actually started writing book one i believe at that point i had tentatively decided on the visit to Jakku Mm -hmm. but it was Jakku and somewhere else it had been locked down as Coruscant where Quell and Soren were going to have their their final face off Um, and I think I I had in mind Coruscant seems like a, a good choice for that probably but that was still an open question up until um really until i started outlining book three i i hadn't i hadn't committed to that fully um because you know there's there's always the logistical issues of like well does it actually make sense for them to be able to get to coruscant it's very far from jakku you mm-hmm. know there's there's also all the you know the other continuity going around there are have been things established about coruscant so figuring out how to uh, how to make that work? I'm glad I'm glad we did because it it is such a symbol of Star Wars and it is. I'm I'm thinking this through now. So between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, mm-hmm. okay, it's not it's not quite the only place that we see a thriving population. There's there's Cloud City as well, but it is right. It is of relatively few times that we see what feels like oh this is representative of life in this galaxy we get a glimpse of you know the Tatooine farm but that's that's very much a rural isolated experience we're not seeing what life is like for anyone other than Luke and his family um sorry I'm just I'm babbling now I'm thinking (laughs) no I love it (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is interesting. No, I think that, I think that's valid, though. Yeah, I mean, Coruscant and too, you kind of present a Coruscant that is so starkly different from a, a very lively populace, right? You you mentioned in there that there's no traffic cars anymore, which I was like, what? There's no traffic cars? Like, what about that intense Attack of the Clones space uh, sequence or the sequence when they're in the <laughs> speeders? You know, and it, it just kind of starkly presented this 
empire imperial rule world that's blockaded and basically what seems like starving and and just taken prisoner by the, by their own government so it was just kind of a new and interesting perspective on that city and you know i would love to think that you know it really kind of came back into the fold as a as a major as a major player in galactic politics at least i would hope so cuz you know we know that eventually all moves to hosnium prime which is destroyed at some point but it is interesting for sure to see it in this time period. Yeah, I mean, Coruscant has to have stories in the years after the fall of the Empire, and they may mm-hmm. not be particularly glorious stories, right? Maybe they are the stories of a world sort of falling into, if not decay, at least dealing with a sudden lack of prominence or struggling to reclaim that prominence. Yeah, I mean, that kind of like troith kind of like troith yeah yeah Uh, yeah is is troith a uh, an image of what coruscant has in store for it or Mm. it's brutal (laughs) yeah and of course doing doing the troith material in in book two really let me kind of shorthand a lot of stuff about coruscant in book three Um, Sure. right we we had the the language of an urban world established at that point and what flying around in one felt like. Um, so I didn't have to invest vast amounts of page space just um, getting across a sense of, oh, what, what is fighting in this, this arena going to be like? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that final sequence where they're on Coruscant, you know, speaking to some of the characters like Quell and Soren, she has such as an admiration and respect for Soren, but she just wishes he were a better man, which she mentions at one point. And I just thought that was like, you know, no matter all the things that he's doing, she still admires him so much. And I, I just think that character relationship is great, but also we kind of explore this philosophical question of what happens to Imperials in the in the post-war world and can justice ever be fair, which these aren't really topics that have been explored too much in Star Wars. So for you, was it fun to sort of go after these bigger picture, intellectually stimulating ideas of, you know, what is fair, what is just, but also who, you know, who gets to have a place in society, you know, no matter the things that you've done? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, to a, to a large extent, those are the, the themes of the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we spell them out in book three, um, but they're they're lurking in there really from you know from traitor's remorse in book one on, mm-hmm. um, and that's I'm I'm a pretty theme oriented writer. Um, I like to have a a sense of what what this is intellectually about um, when I when I start writing, and that was. That was part of what I what I wanted to talk about through these through these characters over this time. Um, you know, there there were certainly as as I write, whatever theme I've started with tends to subtly change. Um, the more <laughs> I sort of work it out, and the more I explore it in detail. Um, but that's that's so much of the joy of it. And yeah, I've been. I was excited beforehand, and I'm I'm glad to see that that's stuff that people are interested in talking about about this book and about Star Wars. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to 
I don't want to claim that I have I have produced anything that is particularly good, <laughs> but but I want to. I'm I'm very glad that people have found it a useful starting place to have conversations that have worth, regardless mm-hmm. of the quality of the material. I'm glad that it has somehow inspired that. Yeah, and um, I think I think something that we see a lot in Star Wars is uh, people not surviving the war, families not necessarily being intact. And, you know, we see that in the quote unquote original sin of the separation of Shmi and Anakin and the paths they ultimately go down. Um, was it always essential for you to keep the members of Alphabet Squadron um, intact, surviving the war uh, as, as the right way to end this story? Um, and And if not, how did you ultimately get there? And if so, uh, why, why was that your, your thought process there? Yeah, so that is, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. There were, we, we certainly discussed the possibility of at least one character dying. And I, that was something that I had not locked in from the start. There were certain characters who I knew were going to make it. Um, there were other characters that I saw, okay, we could, go, we could go a couple of different ways with this character and depending on how everything else shapes together and sort of what feels right when we get to book three, it's always good to have a little bit of flexibility built in mm-hmm. so that uh, you don't end up painting yourself into a corner if you were wrong about anything. Um, so going, going into book three, when, you know, had to actually make those, those decisions of, all right, who's, who's living, who's dying, um, you know, it was still unclear for a little while. Um, you know, we, we, and when I say we, I'm, talking mostly about me and my editor at Delray, Elizabeth Schaefer, um, although uh, Jen Heddle at uh, Lucasfilm had some, some good thoughts on, on all of it as well. Um, we talked about it and we were sort of trying to find the, the perfect alignment of all the, char- all the different character fates. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say all that because once, once we sort of figured out, oh, no, of course they all need to live. This is this is fundamentally a trilogy about surviving the war. It's much more interesting to have them all live. It's much more interesting to go, okay, this is this is about living through this horrible experience. So let's look at how that affects each and every character. We don't need to kill someone off. You know, we had We've had a lot of bloodshed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we we killed off a couple of characters in book two. You know, I've I did my best um, to make even sort of the minor character deaths feel like they had some sort of weight. Um, I'm sure there are readers for whom it does not work to have them all live, and I I understand and respect that. But I feel like for for what what we were trying to accomplish, it was the right choice. That was a long and kind of vague answer. I hope that that gets at uh, what you were asking. I mean, I have to say that um, 
I'm ultimately so glad that this was the decision and, and the way the story ended up going because the amount of um, relief I felt <laughs> at the end of the story and just the amount of um, it felt very healing in a lot of ways uh, to see them all co- go through it and come out on the other side of it. And, you know, there was definitely parts where I was like, oh, gosh, so-and-so is going to die. What if they, What if it happens? I'm going to be really sad. Will it be, you know, a good, a good conclusion? And I, I bet it um, would have been well handled. And I have no doubts about that. But I, I just have to say that I am so grateful for the fact that they all got to see the other side of it in in you know even if it was difficult um because i think that there's a lot of um nuance in that that was appreciated at least from this reader <laughs> no i yeah thank you for uh, for saying that and i mean one other thing that i am i'm grateful to have gotten away with um that final chapter of the book Mm. it's it's not short um like we we wrap up the storyline and then we've got quite a few pages of just moseying around and socializing and wrap up um and that was something that concerned me a little going in i mean you know these are star wars novels these are action adventure pieces and that's that's part of the the natural structure and flow of it all and could I, could I hold that sort of quiet feel for that long a section without it starting mm. to feel tedious? Um, and yeah, that that was not something that that came up in editorial discussion. And so I'm I'm relieved that at least at least a few people found that oh no that worked because I yeah I think we needed that downtime after the the bombast of the whole story. Mm-hmm. 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 It's funny too because when you think back to Lawrence Kasdan and, and George Lucas talking, I know there's that infamous conversation they had prior to Return of the Jedi and figuring out what the script was going to look like. And Lucas, you know, infamous, infamously saying, "You know, I hate when characters get killed." And you know, you you go along with five characters, and one of them's a clown, and they get killed. But you're like, "Wait, that was that was the best character. Why would you do that?" <laughs> I think there's this kind of thing that stories and pop culture have done a lot which is you know kind of more of a grim dark side and killing lead characters and just for the sake of drama and for the sake of kind of that gut punch that you want that emotional reaction but lucas always believed in sort of that uplifting emotionally uplifting feeling where you walk out of the theater and you're like spiritually healed and like you know that's the best thing you could ever do is just feel really really good about everything and i think that's why for me like like Sarah said, yeah, this book was very healing because the whole time you're wondering what's going to happen. And then the last chapter is Will Lark, Chas, and Yurika sitting around a campfire, basically like drinking. And you're just like, what better? How, it doesn't get any better than that. Like it doesn't, that's, that's, that's what you want out of a story sometimes, especially in the year 2020 and 2021. <laughs> things have been tough in the real world, you know? So to kind of have a safe place to see a story play out this way, it was very, it was very nice. Yeah, you know, the the timing of these books, um, I I don't know if they they did terribly in the timing or really well in the timing or maybe a little of both. You know, I've if I could uh if I could have magically rearranged the universe, you know, I'm not <laughs> sure I would have had Shadowfall come out in 
the middle of, you know, 2020. Um, but yeah, it feels like maybe we we made up for that a little bit, releasing, uh, releasing Victory's Price now as, you know, an end to the pandemic is inciting. <laughs> there's just, there's just a little more hope in the world. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. it, it certainly crossed my mind a few times. <laughs> So, and, and speaking to, like, characters surviving, I think redemption especially is something that's been visited a lot of times in Star Wars, and especially redemption through death, that's kind of been a very common thing I've seen in a lot of, a lot of Star Wars stories recently, so I was relieved to see Erica live and have to kind of face who she is, right, and not necessarily redeem herself through death, but really live for atonement and to try to be forgiven, and, you know, that's why she does the reconciliation project. So. Why did you want to tell a story of atonement? Was it just because, like you said, it is not necessarily the easier way out and it's it's kind of a harder, more difficult thing to live, you know, uh, thing to live with post-war? Why, why do you think that atonement is kind of the right way to go in this story? So I think for me, there is a lot of appeal in writing about characters who are struggling with the worst aspects of themselves and in a way that is I think relatable is the wrong word but it's the one I'm going to use here um in in a way that is um small we'll say um Star Wars has a lot of big emotion in it as well it should um that's mm. that's part of the appeal of the franchise um you know it's part of what i love about star wars um but there is a lot that you miss when you go big mm. and i felt like there are there are enough stories in this mold in the star wars universe we see in a lot of redemption and defection stories and it felt like there was room to do a version of that dealing with the sort of smaller scale emotions and dealing with the the day-to-day of living with living with guilt, living with uncertainty, living with not really knowing what the right thing is or deluding yourself into thinking what the right thing is, but not really being completely sure, um, right? Like, Quell is a character who very much lives in a sort of muddy gray area in her own mind. Um, and it felt like, it felt like a Star Wars story that had not been done to death. Um, and there are, you know, Star Wars has been around for, 40 plus years at some point, there are a lot of stories that have been told many times and often, you know, many times well and in, in different ways. But this, this felt like a variation that, that we had not uh, seen extensively and, and honestly one that plays to my strengths as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so, you know, going through that journey with Well, figuring out, all right, what, what does it mean not to have like a grand glorious moment of redemption, but sort of just crawling through life and working your way back from whatever hole you've dug yourself into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think 
Quell of all the characters has has a really interesting kind of come to Jesus moment in in this book with her imagined conversation in the cell with ITO. Mm. Um, you know, we lost ITO in, in Shadowfall. Very very difficult for me. Um, that was that was a lot. Um, but you know, she has this conversation um, with herself with with ITO, and um, it's a bit of a turning point for her in the book in realizing what she needs to do and how she needs to get there. And and what was it like bringing back you know a perceived ITO for the for the, in this capacity and have Quell have this come to Jesus moment with herself i mean it's it's a question it's it's a conversation that she just has on her own and really examining that so what was it like to to build that scene that yeah that was a challenging scene for me um you know i i love writing ito it was it was great fun to to have an excuse to to bring that character back um but it's also not ITO and it had to be it had to be a version of the droid that was true to Quell's perception of ITO mm-hmm. rather than the actual ITO. Um, and finding that that subtle difference and not I didn't want to make that scene a cheat. I didn't want to make it the force ghost of ITO coming back and telling <laughs> Quell what to do. It had mm. to feel like Quell working through the problem herself just in a sort of a dramatized form um, and in a way that had her reflecting on emotional connections that were important to her and her history with that character. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think basically I'm answering your question with it was it was hard and delicate, and I hope it worked. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think she she only had the tools to come to that final realization from all of her therapy sessions with ITO earlier, as well as I think um, you know, in, in some ways her. She had three, not not exactly mentorships, but relationships with people who were able to help her work through her thinking. And that mm-hmm. was fundamentally ITO, Hera, and Soren. Um, and I think her time with with Soren was important to give her the the mental toolbox to be able to work through those things even if she even if she didn't agree with his arguments i think he honed her to an extent that that helped her find that uh that interpretation in that scene i'm going off the text here a little bit um so i think that's that's a interpretation very much up for debate and after the fact thought about by the writer but uh, but you asked the question. I figured I'd uh, I'd take a step at it. <laughs> you mentioned the three characters that really influenced uh, Quell in terms of mentorship. If you were to add a fourth in there, maybe I would I would even say Kairos, and I, I would even think actually Quell did more for Kairos than than the other way around because Kairos, you know, we learn a lot more about her backstory in this book after having so much mystery around her, and. 
I think what Quell really shows her is how you can heal and like how you can move forward, even if kind of the worst sorts of destruction, you know, touch your skin or touch your touch your blood and 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 the violence that you you live through and and witness. And I think we see that by the end where Kairos feels like she can heal, like she feels like she can find somewhere beautiful that she hasn't seen in in a, a quite a long time. But what inspired her backstory in writing this and kind of this very ancient culture where their you know their movements don't make any indentations on the ground and uh they're very much about blood and healing and rejuvenation and uh just what was it like to navigate her story in this book so much so much more and how do you see her background almost affecting the rest of alphabet squadron in terms of not knowing a lot about somebody, but also not needing to in order to respect them and to understand them. Yeah, so she was a character who, um, obviously, we see vastly more of her in in this book than in the previous two books. Um, I had I had a sense of who she was, but I certainly hadn't worked out all the details of her home planet and her culture until getting to this book. I had a, a sense, but they were, you know, I knew what I needed to know to write the first two books at the time that I wrote the first two books. And I figured out what I needed to write the third book when I wrote the third book. Um, and yeah, I mean, she is, The same way that ITO is sort of very intellectually important to Quell, um, I think Kairos is emotionally important. And uh, they they have that sort of profound bond. She is, there's, there's the, the whole ITO, Kairos, uh, Aiden trinity that, uh, mm-hmm. that has been broken and suddenly Kairos and Quell are, are latched together. Um, and that, that becomes vitally, uh, vitally important. And I think is the, the really, the, the key relationship for, for Kairos within the, uh, the squadron. Um, in terms of sort of the, the mystery of Kairos and her culture and the way the rest of the squadron and Hera reacts to that, it was it was important to me to maintain a level of respect for Kairos and her culture and the beliefs of that culture. Um, you know, we we have we have moments where Chas is just appalled that, you know, Kairos would be exiled from her, her culture for, you know, the things that she's been through. Um, Because Chas is Chas and that's going to be her, her natural reaction. Um, But I felt it was important to, to never have Kairos go oh, my people are wrong and backwards, or to have anyone else sort of try to convince Kairos of that. Um, you know, Kairos's culture is 
a different one from the galactic mainstream. Um, but for the most part, characters kind of recognize that and accept that as, all right, well, we need to work with Kairos and her own belief systems rather than trying to impose what we think on her. Mm. And when she goes through her sort of final evolution, um, it's not by rejecting who she is, it's by finding a way that works with who she is to to move forward into something new. Mm. I think, you know, one of the characters that um, really shows us that compassion and that understanding in, in, with Kairos is Hera in that moment where she's, you know, um, bandaging her wounds uh, in the ship. And she says, you know, I, I, I don't understand, but I don't need that to know and respect who you are. Um, and Hera gets a much bigger role in this book than in the first two. So what was it like to utilize her more in this book, having her be a part of some of the really key moments? And ultimately, one really exciting thing for me as a reader was having the ghost make an appearance. Uh, I, I have to mention it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was great to sort of unleash Hera in this book. Mm. Um, you know, book one was... I had a whole squadron to introduce. Um, Hera easily could have outshined everyone else, um, which would not have worked, right? We needed to establish those characters. We needed to give them time in the spotlight. And Hera had to be in there, and she she served as a, a contrast to the rest of the, uh, the main cast. But, you know, her, her role kind of had to be limited to allow everyone else to to develop and make it clear this is not a Hera trilogy this is she is she's in there she's an important part of it um but she's not she's not in there running the show from a thematic perspective um and then of course book two and this is something that I I knew while plotting out the whole trilogy I knew that Hera was going to be gone for a chunk of book two because she needed to go guest star in squadrons um mm -hmm. which you know worked worked well with the notion of okay this is going to be the dark middle chapter we're going to be isolating some of our our characters you know i don't remember uh whether that notion came first or the realization that you know i needed to to take Hera out for a while came first i think it was probably bouncing back and forth and just say okay well this this just all makes sense. This is where we're going. Um, but that meant that book three was really the first opportunity to, to give Hera the spotlight. Because at this point, yeah, we know all of the other characters. And we also cleared the decks a little bit in book two. Uh, you know, sort of sort of awful, awful, grisly way of putting it. But from a, from a pure practical perspective, I had more page space to offer her at that point. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was able to go, all right, well, let's, let's do more Hera. Let's, you know, we've built up to this over the last few books. Let's really let her, her shine. Let's show what the end of the war means to her. 
let's give her some really compelling moments and still have her working as this point of contrast to the rest of the characters. Um, you know, the, the ghost moment, um, that was one that I think I had, I think I had actually written an alternate version of that in my outline and put a little comment on it saying, hey, Lucasfilm, like, if you want to clear me to use the ghost, there's a version of this scene <laughs> that could work with the ghost. Um, and I was not expecting to actually get sign off on that because, of course, you know, this is this is delicate. She is not my character. The ghost is not my uh my toy i'm just borrowing these things for my sandbox um but yeah i mean they're they they gave the thumbs up it was like okay this is this is going to be great (laughs) this is going to be a little little reward for the hera fans um that hopefully also isn't distracting for people who aren't familiar with rebels or don't have the same Mm. emotional attachment that that this is we have enough. We know that Hera is attached to to this ship, and you know it's not something that we're going to linger on for a third of the book. It's it's in there as a as a moment of closure. Yeah, it was a moment. I my jaw my jaw hit the floor. I'm pretty sure <laughs> it was like, oh my god, the ghost. It's been everywhere. It's been in Rogue <laughs> One. It's been in. Been in now the Battle of Jakku, Battle of Endor. Hera is a is a a long time war veteran, and I think that's what makes the conversation with her and Mothma at the very end. You know, it kind of jumped towards more of the ep- epilogue portions of the book. It makes that conversation so fascinating because she recognizes, you know, she's been a rebel basically her whole life, and now it's kind of weird that the rebellion and the Republic have won. They have to be a little bit more harsh. They can't just accept everybody with open arms. And I think that's where we end up with Quell and, you know, her off kind of on her own, not totally pardoned, but basically has a, has a free pardon. And, you know, she ends up with another character, Chas. Chas has such a big journey in this book, I think. You know, we see her at such a low place at the end of Shadowfall. And I think in this, she's really dealing with a lot and trying to use the children of the empty sun as sort of a of a drug so do you feel that you know when we get to that point six years later and will says you know it looks good on you you needed each other do you feel like chas has found her true self and how important is rediscovering and rekindling her you know friendship and love with quell and and finding that you know i don't know if she's found her true self or not um and again, like I'd, I'd have to speculate based on what is on the page without necessarily being being right about the answers. I mean, I think she's certainly she has centered herself more than we've ever seen her before, uh, mm-hmm. and we see her. You know, we see that she still has an interest in religion. Um, you know, I, I think she's got some some decorations mentioned around the around the house right like she hasn't she hasn't abandoned the things that have meant something to her but she has she has found a level of balance um that we haven't seen for her uh uh previously um 
she probably still has a ways to go. You know, she strikes me as a character who's going to have lifelong struggles with quite a few issues. Uh, she, she has a lot of trauma in her past. And even after six years, some of that uh, doubtless remains. But having someone like Quell, who she who she went, she shared so many of those experiences with being able to, to trust her and lean on her and to, to have someone to help center her, um, I think is, that's what's, what's keeping Chas in, in a much better place than she's ever been. Uh, which is not to say like, oh, Chas would just fall apart if they broke up. Um, but having having a support system is what has gotten her there, and I think the the love is almost a fringe benefit of that support system. Mm. Um, she needed she needed Quell or someone like Quell, and that is something that became romance rather than the other way around at least that would be my interpretation of it yeah i i definitely can see that and uh it ultimately feels like i feel like a natural conclusion for both of these characters because you know we get this conversation in the middle of the book where they're back together they're going on a walk and i think it's chas who says you know it's important to have somebody that you trust even if you don't like them and it over time, um, that relationship has evolved and grown. And I think it's kind of a beautiful conclusion for them in this moment, knowing that neither of them are, are perfect or fully together or whole, but they can find a little bit of comfort there. And that felt good after they both had, um, you know, both had suffered um, so much. Um, but I think in terms of people who have sacrificed and suffered so much, we, we can't forget about will uh and him being the last of the 120 um pilots of polyneus and seemingly the most prolific now that he is the last and the the talk with the elders um or with the elder was a, a bit of a turning point for him ultimately we see him walk away uh from that final battle at jakku so why did you feel that that was important that he hit his breaking point in the book um and how did you go about crafting that and then juxtaposing that with um, where he ends up as a senator. Sure. So, I mean, he's been he's been driving towards that breaking point for a while, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've seen him struggling with this for several solid books at that point. <laughs> you know, he's come to this position as a leader, and he's he's ended up more more tangled in the war and leadership than really he was even before the Battle of Endor. Um, mm. Right, you know, he was he was flying um, with uh, with Riot Squadron, but he wasn't leading it. He wasn't he wasn't planning attacks and he thought he was getting away after Endor and now it's now he's ended up dug in worse than ever and part of Part of that first conversation with uh, with the the elders basically drives him to realize that. Um, mm-hmm. 
And at that point, it's really sort of a, a series of, of dominoes falling that bring him to the realization that it's time for him to go one way or another. Um, you know, he's not going to he's not going to stand by so long as innocents are actively in danger. He's not going to walk out in the middle of the battle for, for Chidawa. Um, but, you know, by the time Jakku rolls around, he, there is no imminent threat at that point. And mm. he has been thinking about this. He has been thinking about, you know, what, what drove Soren to leave Shadow Wing and how bad things got because of Soren's return to Shadow Wing. You know, all of this stuff has been going through his mind. And, you know, he, he has that, that speech. I mean, I'm really just sort of summarizing what I already wrote. I apologize for that. But yeah, I mean, he, he has his moment where he points out like, all right, at what point do we just declare the war over? Uh, and that that has been his his struggle from from page one is identifying that moment. And I think it's I've got no no qualms with the readers looking at that and going, "No, Will, that was the wrong moment." <laughs> it, that may be a valid question, but not then. Yeah, uh, Nath Tenzent would agree yeah. as well. He's like, "Get out of my war room." <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I, I fully expected um, some readers to lose a lot of sympathy for for Will at that point, mm. but I thought that was that was the path for his character. That was the path that I wanted to explore in terms of sort of what it means to, you know, he's, he's certainly not a pacifist, but he's, he's the closest thing that we sort of have to, to work with. And yeah, where, where does that go for an ending? It felt like, all right, he, there's a lot of stuff that he clearly doesn't fit into. There are people who are going to be, be, not thrilled with what he's done, but he's very much an embodiment of his people as well. Um, and having that, that symbolically to essentially become literal with him becoming a senator felt like, okay, this is, this is an appropriate ending. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. The, the ending, the ending was very uplifting and, and like Sarah said, healing to just see the six years after the fact and uh, still wondering where Nath and, and Kairos are at. But, you know, I, I, we have many, many different headcanons to see, you know, where they all end up and, <laughs> and uh, that sort of thing. Maybe they'll have their, their Thanksgiving dinner eventually all together. But who knows? Who knows? Their life, life day dinner. Yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> when you said maybe they'll have their Thanksgiving dinner for a second there, I thought you were talking about just Kairos and Nath having their like separate hangout. Ah. Like, oh, yeah, those, those losers out there. Like, they don't know what they're missing. <laughs> Nath and Kairos, they hang out all the time. They're, they're two-person per group chat. <laughs> Nobody else exactly, is invited. Exactly, yes. They're just constantly bad-mouthing everyone else. <laughs> I could see I it. could actually I see could that, see yeah. <laughs> well, there's a couple of rapid-fire questions that we did have for you. And, and speaking of Will, I think that's kind of a, a continuation of that. So Senator Will is a big, a big deal for us. We do love politics and Star Wars. Uh, in your headcanon, do you see any future in which he works with Leia Organa? 
Uh, we think yes, but we're wondering, you know, maybe sometime in the future, you think that's that's on the uh, the docket? I don't know. It, it's certainly possible. Um, on the other hand, it's a big Senate. I, mm. you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, it's been established how large the new Republic Senate is. If it's anything like the old Republic Senate, though, um, there's there's plenty of room uh, to to not get to know your fellow senators, but surely they cross paths at some point in some form. Yeah, extra ironic, too, considering, you know, what we know eventually is Leia's father as Darth Vader gets outed and Will was the one to witness the pyre in Return of the Jedi. So there are some <laughs> really there are some really interesting uh, dynamics there, you know, because uh, once that comes out, it kind of puts a whole new spin on it. I, w- I would wonder what Will thinks of Leia once that is outed. So that's yeah, that that never occurred to me. Um, that is a really interesting question. Okay, so I regret to say that it took Brad realizing first and then telling me that all the song titles in part one um, were from Dead Worlds, <laughs> mostly from Operation Cinder. I mean, you spell it out. You say, you know, uh, songs from Lost Civilizations, but it took me a minute. <laughs> but anyway, that absolutely killed me. I, I love the music and Chas's song genres and things in these books. Uh, so... What made you kind of go with those chapter titles and for for the beginning of this uh, book? And I guess a broader question, like, how do you come up with your chapter titles? Because they're so much fun to read. <laughs> you know, I, I think if I had known how much work the chapter titles were going to be when I started <laughs> book one, I might have approached it differently. Uh, I mean, the, the chapter titles for, for the trilogy were really the... I don't. I don't know if they're they're the most metatextual. I mean, they're they're the mm. they're the single bit that draws the most attention to the narrator, um, and the narrator clearly has a slightly oddball sense of humor and is maybe a little bit snarky as well. Like there's there's something <laughs> going on in those chapter titles where there's there's, yes. there's a, a a bit of a sense of black humor there. Uh, mm-hmm. As for the the song title one specifically. I don't remember what uh, what made me think that was the right move. I think part of it was, you know, I, I enjoyed so much all of the the chass music material from the first two books. I felt like that was an important sort of not a huge aspect to the story, but it was in there. It was it was meaningful, and we weren't getting a lot of that in book three. Um, so I think part of that was was my way of bringing back the, the musical motif um, a little bit. Uh, I did, I don't believe I, I chose the, the chapter title themes and started naming them until after I had written a first draft and then sort of went back to figure out what was working. Um, it's varied a little bit from book to book. In in some in some sections, I've had notions of oh, this is this is the category for part two, um, and sort of stubbing in some placeholder chapter titles along the way. Whereas in other series, it was I have no idea what what this part is going to be uh, entitled. I will go back and figure it out later based on the content of the chapters. Sorry, this is the lightning round, isn't it? I'm still. 
<laughs> uh, you know, we did not. We didn't. We didn't. Never... That wasn't a very lightning round question. <laughs> it was our fault. So we cheat. We're, we're cheaters here. We're like a rapid fire, and then we ask like these very like detailed questions. <laughs> uh, I want to know if you could sit down and have a conversation with any of your characters from this trilogy. Who would you choose, and what would you want to talk to them about? Oh, oddly enough, the the first two options that spring to mind are Ito and Aiden. Mm. And I think part of that is the 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 five prime squadron members, I know them too well to have much of an interesting conversation. I think I'd just be afraid of what they would have to say to me. <laughs> um, right? The, what, why did you do this to us? Yeah. <laughs> I I feel like uh, Ito would have interesting insights and you know just sort of going going full-on therapy droid there i think like he'd be a he'd be an interesting dinner table conversationalist um you know and i i think i think aiden if you put him in the right environment he's at least gonna have interesting uh things to say even if they wouldn't necessarily be things that i would agree with Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah the ito would kind of scare the other other members of the restaurant, the waiter staff, I'd be a little worried <laughs> for their safety too. He's an imperial <laughs> torture droid. Get out of here. <laughs> that that might have to be a home dinner party, not a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In these pandemic days, you know, gotta gotta go that way. Well, he is he is pretty safe in terms of infectiousness. So true. That, that's true. another good reason to invite mm-hmm, him over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just do a dinner party with him and the surgeon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is maybe another have think about it for a second question. Hopefully we worded it well. So what are two Star Wars characters, one from Alphabet Squadron, uh the the books, and maybe one that's not, that don't know each other throughout the whole saga that would be best friends? <laughs> you think? Like I think like Rose Tico and Bail Organa would be good friends. I feel like they have some interesting moralities that align and they want to fight for good things but they obviously exist in completely different parts of the universe hmm. so you want an alphabet squadron member and someone outside the books yes yeah yep. well i mean will can get along with anyone um i wonder you know i think chas and lando would get along great Ooh, oh it's a man. good one I think it would be rough and competitive, but thinking about thinking about Lando and the sort of people who he seems to be drawn to, um, you know, thinking about Lando and L3, thinking about Lando and Han, like I think he would have a lot of fun with someone like Chas. And I think Chas would find him the right mix of tolerance for her, but also ridiculous, crimey exuberance. <laughs> Definitely. I, I like this, and I feel like I'm going to have to ponder on this one a lot, <laughs> because I, it's fun. So you've written in the Age of Rebellion, the Age of the New Republic, and the Old Republic. So I just wanted to know, is there any era left that you would like to touch or any new sandbox you would like to, to play in? Like, what's kind of your, 
your meat and potatoes right now in Star Wars or an era that still kind of pulls you in? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'd certainly be curious to work in the sort of full-on sequel trilogy era. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's never something that I've, I've touched. Um, it'd also be interesting to work in the, in the prequel era, which I haven't really done. I've gone pre-prequel and I've done sort of the dark time stuff, but I've never... Uh, I don't think I've ever even written a like Clone Wars era thing. I'm I'm less interested in the Clone Wars than say Phantom Menace era. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. But uh, yeah, there's there's some unexplored territory out there. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um. So last question. Looking back at this trilogy, the three books, the past, you know, three four years, what has this trilogy meant to you, both personally and professionally? So this trilogy has been my my biggest ever chance to tell a story that is really my own. I've been on bigger projects. I've been on projects that took longer. Um, but those were ones where my voice was one of a number of other voices, um, often voices that I had just amazing respect for um but this is this feels like it's mine um and that's that's a pretty wonderful feeling it's yeah to go yeah i i put this thing together this this deals with ideas and themes that you know i've thought about for a long time these are characters that i've gotten very close to and it's it's on a canvas larger than anything that i've i've gotten to work with in this way before so certainly on a on a personal level you know all that um professionally um i love writing books and i just wrote more books than i had ever written before this trilogy and it was great i want to write more books and <laughs> i hope this uh this allows me to do that. Yeah. Well, you said at the beginning of this interview that you're in a time right now where you haven't had a Star Wars book in front of you to, to be writing. And uh, I can speak for Sarah and I in saying we hope that changes sometime soon. <laughs> because um, We have our ideas of what we would love to see you uh, maybe do or write next. And uh, I'm sure, you know, after you did Man of Cloud, uh, the King of Cloud City, um, and then, you know, this whole Alphabet Squadron trilogy, it's just been a blast to see all the different uh, projects that you've worked on in the last uh, couple years. So, uh, Alexander, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you uh, second time here mm-hmm. on the podcast. But where can our listeners find your stuff online? And uh, what do you got coming up that you'd love to uh, to mention? Uh, so folks can find me online on Twitter at at Alexander M. Freed. Um, I mentioned most of my new projects as they come there. Um, I've also got a website, alexanderfreed.com, that's updated a little less frequently, but uh, big news always makes it there eventually. Um, so uh, I encourage people to check that out. There's also tons of articles on video game writing in particular, if anyone has an interest in that. Um, as for things coming up, uh, most of my work right now is in video games that I can't actually talk about at this particular juncture. Um, but I've also uh, got a Kickstarter coming up to collect the Violet Dawn webcomic, 
that uh, we put together over the last uh, year or two. Um, so for anyone interested in uh, sort of weird, dark fantasy, sort of dark crystal meets Conan the bar bar Barbarian with, you know, my usual flavoring, um, I encourage them to, uh, to check that out um, and sign up for the Kickstarter announcement newsletter at violetdawn.com slash kickstarter. Awesome. And we'll definitely include links to all those things in the description notes uh, for this episode. So once again, just want to uh, thank you for your time today and joining us and answering all of our um, extra long questions and <laughs> hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Alexander Freed. Again, it was really awesome to have him back on the show after almost 10 months. So uh, it's just an honor to not only get to talk about this story with you, Sarah, last week, but then to interview the author the next week. And I am just, you know, very, uh, very sad to kind of close out this chapter on Alphabet Squadron. Although uh, don't be sad because it's over. Be happy because it happened. Well, Sarah, what did you think of the interview? How did you think it went? What were you excited about? I just was excited to hear him talk about his process and all these characters that, you know, obviously us as readers have come to know and love, but that he knows so much more, so much more and so much better. And to get to hear him talk a little bit about these characters and how he brought it all home in this book was just a delight. So glad. Feels like some good closure for uh, Victory's Price. So I'm, I'm glad we got to share it with all of you listening. But in the meantime, and until the next episode, Sarah, where are you online and where can people follow you? You can find me at SCH221 on Twitter, Goodreads and Letterboxd, and Sarah's Puzzled Pages on Instagram, where puzzles and books happen. Damn. I love puzzles and I love books, so I make sure to follow that account. I think I'm already Thanks. following it, though. So You are. Thank you. Yes. Yes. As for me, you can find me at Brad Whipple on Twitter and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Make sure if you're listening to leave us a little five-star review and written review if you can. If you have some extra minutes in the day, it really helps others to find the show and join the Star Wars discussion. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash friends of the force. So if you love the show and you want to show a little bit of extra support, we got our $1 tier starting over there. But thank you to all of our patrons, Anna, Brian, Cheryl, Deborah, Donnie, Elegy, Jesse, Knights of Ren, Levi, Lindsay, Marie-Claire, Neil, Rachel, Sarah, and T. And thank you to our newest patron, Brian. Welcome, Brian. We got two thank Brians you. in the Patreon now. Look at that. We got Brian awesome Squared. Stuff. Great stuff. Brian Squared. Thank you, Brians. Plural. That is all for this episode, everybody. Thank you so much for your support and for staying this long in the episode. And until next time, may the force be with you always. Bye.